Now, while you have received the exact same Bible reading that we had last week, I'm not going to be so shifty to see if I can get away with preaching the exact same sermon uh, two weeks in a row. Um, Last week we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 15 because we have been uh, preaching through the book of Revelation over a period of 13 weeks, well we'll be 13 in total, we've got uh, two more weeks to go. Um, We did mention a number of places throughout our study in Revelation that there are different interpretations or understandings of the book and in particular regarding where does Jesus' return fit in with regards to this millennial reign that we looked at last week in chapter 20. So what we're going to do this morning is probably a little bit more teaching than it is um, sermon-wise, is the way we normally would do things, uh, but to sort of come to an understanding of why do people have different understandings as to where these things to get, fit together, um, and does it matter, does it mean that we respond um, any differently? So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning, because lots of times I've hinted that there are other views, but I've never um, touched on them because we've time um, or given biblical reasons why they reach those conclusions. Heavenly Father, we pray as we uh, look to this often disputed idea of the nature of Jesus' return, Lord, we pray that it would help us to be gracious in our uh, understanding and our dealings with one another. But Lord, we pray too that we would Uh, stand very firmly on the fact that you are indeed returning. We need to be ready and we need to proclaim the gospel that people might be ready for him. Lord, help us to understand your word. Help us to understand one another who may come from different perspectives. Uh, But help us to see, honour and cherish Jesus through our time together, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I can't say I'm a huge fan of reality TV, and I haven't watched much MasterChef, but one few of the times that I have watched MasterChef, often they'll have a really, really complicated recipe, which they'll give to all of the contestants. Sometimes they'll have even shown them what the finished product would look like. Sometimes they don't. And what you'll notice that even though all of these people have the exact same recipe in front of them, the results which come out look very, very different. And you think, how could you create things that look different? You've all got the exact same recipe, the exact same instructions. Well, it'll probably come down to people interpreting the instructions a little bit differently. In the example of cooking, at least, there's probably some skills that come into it as well. But guess what? If any of these 10 things that were cooked were given to you, you do the same thing, don't you? You eat it and you enjoy it. Today, as we think about the Bible's teaching of the return of Jesus, everyone who has a different perspective on this has the exact same book, the exact same Bible that they base their beliefs upon. And they reach very different conclusions. Ever since the beginning of the church, people have had different ideas about the nature and timing of Jesus' return. Last week when we looked at Revelation chapter 20, we said that everyone agrees that Revelation chapter 19 describes the return of Jesus. 
But people fit into either two different camps or whether Revelation 20 describes events that happen after chapter 19 or if it's another case where John is retelling events from a different perspective. But before we look at these different perspectives, there's three things I want to say before we begin. The first is this. People who I respect, who are solid Bible-believing Christians, fall into every single one of these four different interpretations of where this fit in. None of them are a mark that you are a heretic or a true Christian, and nor should we look down or speak of one another, depending on what view that we take. The second thing I want to say is whenever you're interacting, not only on this topic, any topic with people with different views, make sure you represent the other views well and honestly. Often when people want to present their case, they'll put the worst case scenario of the most loony tunes person who represents that view. Represent them well. Represent them honestly. And even though we're talking about four broad categories, even within those, there'll be some differences of opinion within those. So this is our approach for this morning. First, we're going to introduce the concept of there being four different views. But then we're going to go through each of these four views, explaining what they are, what their background and their history is, what parts of the Bible sort of lean in that sort of direction, why people um, come to those conclusions. We're going to talk about some of the ways the Bible causes difficulty for those views, including the one which I myself hold. We're going to look at the implications for the church for each of these views. And if you want to read more as in a good source from each of these views, um, they're not going to get mentioned, but I can provide those for you. And then we'll wrap up, how should we respond? So as an introduction, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 is the only part of the Bible that specifically talks about this 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Everyone agrees chapter 19 describes the return of Jesus. Everyone agrees that chapter 20 speaks about a determined time which Jesus will reign along with saints. Where people differ is whether or not Jesus' return will happen before the millennium happens or if Jesus' return happens after the millennium happens. Think about when people are having a dinner party. They will often refer to pre-dinner drinks. There's in pre-dinner drinks are drinks which happen before dinner or they might talk about post-dinner drinks, meaning drinks you have after the dinner. So when people use these different ways of describing when will Jesus return, they speak about when Jesus will come, sorry, where the millennium fits with regards to Jesus. So they'll use terms like post-millennium, meaning Jesus will come after the millennium. And there are two different views of of how that works out. Now, people who are believe post-millennium believe two things. One, that Jesus will come after this period of time of the millennium and that it is not a physical millennium kingdom on this earth. Then there's those two different expressions of pre-millennium, meaning Jesus comes before the millennium 
And they also believe that that millennium and that reign, that kingdom will happen on this earth. Now, you'll be relieved to know at the end of this, there is not going to be a pop quiz on all these big words that may get used. And if you remember none of the actual words at the end of the sermon, that doesn't matter. Now, there is another view which we're not going to bother explaining, which is called preterism, which kind of says that everything's already happened, including the second coming of Jesus, AD 70. We're not talking about that one because I'm happy to, quite happy to call that one heresy. But now let's look one at a time. Firstly, post-millennialism. Here's a little bit of a definition. Post-millennialism believes that the reign of Jesus describes a time in world history where the preaching of the gospel will bring the majority, not all, of people to the world to become Christian. It'll be a time of peace and prosperity because there'll be little or no opposition to Christianity. This will be followed by a short time of falling away, then Jesus will return and the end of world history and will judge the living and the dead. You could say, certainly, this is the most optimistic and even though it's not my position, it's the one I really hope is true. The idea that the gospel would spread so much that the entirety or the majority of the world would become Christian. To illustrate it by way of this diagram up here, to say that we're now in the church age, but there would come a time that the gospel would have such an impact on the world in which we live in that the millennium would be the time when the majority of the world would be converted and followers of Jesus Christ. Now, within those views, some will say it's a literal thousand years, some will say it's a long time, a period of completion, there will be a difference of views. But all agree that when Jesus returns, that is the time when every single person will be judged and will go into the eternal state, either eternal punishment or eternal life. Now, this view goes back all the way back to the 4th century, the first clearest written expression, but it probably exists earlier than that, through Tychonius. As we look at this diagram, which we'll do for all of them, doesn't talk about the time when people believed it, but talks about the time when it was the most prevalent view in the church. And particularly between the 1700s and 1900s, it was the most common view in the church because during that time, there was a great revival. And people were starting to see the gospel having this sort of impact. Its main distinctives are that there will be a golden age when the world is mostly Christian, shared with all versions of post-millennials, that when Jesus returns, that will bring the end of this world Everybody will be judged, either go to eternal life or eternal punishment. Now, if you've never heard about this before, you think, where do people get this idea from? Because all of these views have Bible passages which lean in that direction. For example, the promises to, to Abraham in Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now it seems to speak of a time when all families of the earth will be blessed. Or in Psalm 22, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all of the nations. So they would say that there's come a time when the majority, if not all families of the earth, will worship the Lord. Or it could be taken from the Great Commission. When Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples, 
then it would make sense that if he has all authority, that that mission to go make disciples of all nations would take place. Or when Jesus says in the Lord's prayers, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this view would say that that must proceed, that there will become a time when God's will will happen on earth as it is in heaven. Think about the ways Jesus spoke about in the parables of the kingdom. Use the example of a mustard seed or a yeast, something which begins small but continues to grow and grow and to grow. One of the key verses for the worldwide success of the gospel coming before the return of Christ is Matthew twenty four fourteen, And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So that's the basic biblical main text for this particular view. As with all of them, there are some parts of the Bible that are difficult to answer with each of the views. This idea there will be a golden age where it's mostly Christian and there is no persecution kind of runs counterintuitive to the idea the Bible seems to express that it should be normal for the Christian experience to experience suffering and persecution. The Bible seems to describe the world getting worse rather than better. Both views of the post-millennial have the idea that the resurrections of Revelation 22 are different in nature. We talked about that last week. But what's the implications for the church if this was to be true? Is it going to be a good thing or a bad thing for the church if people held this view? Well, if people are of the perspective that the gospel is going to impact this world in such a way that it spreads the majority of people and it causes people to go out boldly with evangelism to all of the world... Is that a bad thing for the church? I don't think so. If it believes that the gospel must go to all nations before Jesus will return and therefore it surges world missions, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. The second of those are post-millennium, meaning Jesus comes after the millennium described in Revelation 20, is called amillennialism. The people who have these views don't come up with the titles. To put an A before something kind of means no. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a millennium. This is my own personal perspective. For those wondering, it probably would have been obvious last week. But it's not an earthly millennium, nor a specifically a thousand-year millennium. Our millennium believes that Jesus began his reign after his resurrection and the exaltation to the right hand of God having been given all power and authority, either Christians who are spiritually raised and seated with him, as it says in Ephesians 2.6, or the martyred saints are reigning with Jesus. The thousand years represents a long time or a completed time, after which Jesus will return to end world history and judge the living and the dead. So it's got in common with the previous one, is the whole idea is that when Jesus comes, it's the end of world history, everyone is judged, the eternal state will begin. So it's diagrammed like this, that all of the church age between Jesus' first coming and the second coming is that millennium described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. So what's the history of this view? Although it's likely present earlier, that usually gets credited to Augustine, around about 300 AD, which is, when you think about it, 
that's also the time when they're starting to put together the final touches of the what are the list of the books that belong in the Bible, when they're starting to articulate more clearly the, the doctrine of the Trinity. But between about 300 and 1700, this was the predominant view of the church. So this, remember, this thing is not showing the only time when people believed it, but when it was the predominant view in the church. So its main distinctives is that this reign is between Jesus' first coming and his second. That even though there will be tribulation and struggles, the gospel will continue to go forward and have effect. When Jesus returns, it brings the end of world history and everybody's judged. So what's the biblical argument for the idea that Jesus would be reigning everything from his first coming to his, to his second the main point of that would come from what Peter said at Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set, on, on, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, says, you know how David said that one would sit on his throne forever? Peter says the fulfillment of that was the resurrection of Christ. To go back to the Great Commission, if Jesus has all authority now, as he says he does, then it makes no sense that there would be a future receiving all of all authority. Paul likewise speaks of the, Jesus having all rule and authority now, saying, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So from these perspectives, Jesus seems to be reigning now, has all authority now. Now one of the things I said about both of the views that say that Jesus comes after the millennium is that it's not something that physically happens on this earth. Now, when Pilate asked Jesus about his kingdom or whether he was a king, Jesus' response was to say, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus told them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, there it is. Or behold, or there, because behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So Jesus on a number of times says, my kingdom that, I'm, that you're speaking of is not of and not visible in this world. When you read through Jesus' teaching on, the, on his return in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, particularly in chapter 25, Jesus gives three parables all talking about a master or someone who would returning and the importance of being prepared for his return because when he returns, there would be an eternal and final division over the righteous and the unrighteous. 
So what are the biblical difficulties or challenges to this perspective? Again, like the other one, it requires the two resurrections of Revelation 20 to be different in nature, and we explained uh, what those differences were last week. It's not a literal thousand years, because after all, we are 2,000 years on since uh, Jesus ascended and was reigning at the right hand of the Father. But what are the implications for the church? Well, there's certainly that confidence. If Jesus is reigning now, doesn't it make, make a difference to the way you and I live on a daily basis? And if we believe that when Jesus returns, that's the end of world history. That is the time when every single person will be judged. And if we don't know where that time is, does that not ramp up the urgency of the gospel? No, and there's no such thing as a second chance draw. So that ends there, ends two different versions of things where Jesus comes after the millennium, the, the kingdom is not on this earth. What about the two that say that Jesus comes before the millennium and that that kingdom will take place on this earth? The first gets called historic premillennialism because it was the one which was believed back in history. Historic premillennialism believes that Jesus, the reign of Jesus will be on earth either for a thousand years, some say it's literal, some say it's just for a long time. Jesus will rapture the church in the clouds and continues immediately at that same time to the earth with either some or all of the Christians to reign on the earth. Judgment occurs at the end of this period of time. So in this view it says that you've got the church age, Jesus is reigning, they agree with what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, he's inaugurated that reign. We're in that church age, tribulation happens within this time. But they'd say there is the rapture of the church in the clouds that 1 Thessalonians talks about. Jesus' actual coming to earth that same time and then reigning on the earth for either a literal thousand years or a long period of time. At which points they have different views. Does the new heavens and new earth take place during this millennium or at the end of it? Uh, different views, but the idea that there would be a resurrection of unbelievers for judgment and that those who are in Christ would remain on the new heavens and new earth for the eternal state. So where's the history here? Well, it's called historic for a reason, that it was the earliest, most written um, belief regarding the return of Christ. If we see here, go back to our Diagram for the, between about 50, we've got earliest expressions of it, up to 300, it was the most common view of the church. But that being said, even in early days, people had differing ideas. Justin Martyr, who held this view, we have this recorded in one of his writings from around about 155 AD. He's speaking about his particular view and he says to this man named Trifo, who a Jew, then I answer, I'm not so miserable a fellow Trifo, as to say one thing and think another. I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place, as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many Christians who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. So he's reminding Trifo, yeah, this is what I believe, and there's lots of others who believe with me on this. But he says, but I know there's plenty of other genuine Christians who have a different opinion on this. So its main distinctives are this. 
that there is a rapture, but Jesus coming to earth is at that exact same time. It'll be different from the other version we were going to look at in that it sees that Jesus being the fulfilment of the temple and of national Israel. Its main biblical argument is when you read through Revelation, Revelation 20 follows chapter 19, so one comes after the other. So what are its difficulties? Probably the two biggest difficulties are those things we saw Jesus say about his kingdom when he says it's not of this earth, that it's not coming in ways that can be seen or observed. Again, implications for the church, we have the idea that Jesus is reigning now and that should give us confidence in this world in which we live in. The last of these views, so the second of those who believe that Jesus comes and then the millennium happen. Here we go for, well, it's a love big words, dispensational premillennialism. Here you go, we'll kiss on that afterwards. Dispensationalists believe that the next events in God's plan will be the secret rapture of the church. This will be preceded by a seven-year great tribulation in which the Antichrist will make a treaty with the Jews, which he will then betray. After seven years tribulation, Jesus will come, defeat the Antichrist and establish 1,000 year kingdom on earth which will promises to national Israel will be fulfilled at the end of the literal thousand years will be a great white throne judgment and the eternal state and your diagram becomes a little bit more confusing a little bit more detail so this period now they would say Jesus is not reigning in any sense the next thing that will happen there will be a secret rapture then of the Christians, then there'll be seven years of tribulation. So remember how we've said, as we've gone through Revelation, some people say that chapter 6 onwards describes a future period. So people from this perspective would say that everything from chapter 6 up until chapter 20 is this seven-year period described on that diagram there. Then a thousand-year millennium on earth, which will be particularly Jewish in nature according to this perspective, when promises to national Israel would be fulfilled. And then much like the historic version, resurrection of unbelievers for judgment and the believers will remain on a new heaven and new earth for the eternal state. So what's the history of this view? Every single view that we've looked at so far has been believed throughout the majority of Christian history from early days and in different degrees of how commonly believed it was. This is an exception to that rule. This one doesn't have a long history. Matter of fact, this particular things that make it distinctive from the previous version have only been around for a couple of hundred years. Charles Ryrie, who wrote one of the key books on this particular belief set, and his book, Dispensationalism, says this. The first straw man is to say that dispensationalists believe that the system was taught in Pope apostolic times. In other words, it's wrong to say that this is what people in the early church believed. Informed dispensationalists do not claim that. They recognise that as a system, dispensationalism was largely formulated by Darby. Now, Darby was, J.N. Darby was the founder of the Plymouth Brethren Church. But outlines of a dispensationalist approach to the scriptures are found much earlier. They only maintain that certain features that would eventually developed into dispensationalism are to be found in the teachings of the early church. So when he says there are early outlines of it, meaning that the historic thing, the idea that Jesus would come before 
the millennium and even the idea that various views have different ways of dividing up different eras in, in the history of God's plan of redemption. But he did say, started effectively with J.N. Darby in the 1800s. And when J.N. Darby wrote about this particular view, he himself said, this is a new teaching. It grew through popularity through the Schofield Reference Bible. Also, if you've got a Ryrie Study Bible, he's a very big player in that. Dallas Theological Seminary, or on the more popular level, if you've read any of the Left Behind books or videos, this is the, the framework which they work from. So in terms of where it fits in as to where it's a predominant view, probably 1900s, this data I got together was up until 2015. I don't know if it still would be the predominant view in the world. Certainly in parts of North America it would be. But even Dallas Theological Seminary, the college which was most um, influencing in terms of bringing this teaching out, uh, have kind of moved quite some distance from it. So what are the main distinctives of this one? The biggest and most prevalent distinctive is the division between the church and Israel. That there are two plans of God for national Israel and for the, the church. They would say that when Jesus came the first time, he came to offer Jews a political kingdom on this earth, but that they rejected it. And as a result, then the gospel went to the nations. People from this perspective will say that this was an unknown, parenthetical time, that it wasn't known in the Old Testament that God would have a time when the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. And also distinct to this particular view is it's got two future comings of Jesus. Coming first to do that secret rapture, and then a second coming seven years later after that tribulation to actually come to earth. During this millennium, they would rebuild the temple, return to sacrifices. Not sacrifices to atone for sin. They would say they're doing it in memorial, sort of like we do a communion in a memorial for what Jesus has done. It would be predominantly Jewish in nature in which the promises to Israel would be fulfilled and that many Jews would be saved during this time. So what's the main biblical leaning towards this direction? It's a really complicated passage which we're not going to have time to go through to you, but Daniel chapter 9 talks about a 70-week plan of God. And everyone agrees up to the 69th week describes the coming of Jesus Christ, his first coming. But then when it goes on in verses 26 and 27, speaking about after that, after this time, anointed ones shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week, and half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So they'd say that, yes, the, the 69th week... It was, it was Jesus Christ, the anointed one who was cut off. But then they say a really big gap until when Jesus has his rapture. And during the seven-year tribulation that an antichrist would be this prince who is to come, who would enter into a covenant with the Jews, which he would later betray. And then, um, then Jesus would come at the end of that seven-year period. 
So what are the biblical difficulties here? Well, there's that initial point that no Christian actually held this view until 200 years ago. It has difficulty with the idea that Peter said that David, the one who would sit on David's throne forever, this was achieved through the resurrection of the Christ. It's got difficulty with Jesus saying that my kingdom's not of this earth, that it's not coming in ways that can be seen with the eye. Even its key passages, Daniel chapter 9, provides no reason why you need to put a massive gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. As I read it, the Bible does not describe two future returns of Jesus. And if you were to look at the passage that speaks of this secret rapture, so to speak, it doesn't sound very secret or discreet in any way, does it? This is the main passage. The Lord himself will descend with a cry of a command, or some translations have a shout of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, if you've ever wanted to do something sneaky, I would thoroughly suggest trumpets no good. <laughs> the amount of times that our kids have woken up Sarah when she's sleeping in just by playing harmonica, imagine if I gave them a trumpet. I won't do it because I'm not that cruel. And according to Galatians chapter 3, the promises that were given to Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ. He says, who is an offspring of Abraham? It is those who believe in Christ. He says he foresaw and spoke that the Gentiles would come to faith. That when he promised things to to Abraham, his offspring, he didn't say offspring plural, but offspring singular, who is Christ. To the Ephesian church, Paul said clearly about God making one people of God from the two, from Jewish and Gentile. Jesus seemed to understand himself as being the fulfilment of the temple. So what would be the implications for the church? Well, if this causes you to have a heightened desire to see Jews come to faith in Christ, I think that's good. I don't care care if you've got a plan for any particular nation, a great desire to see those people come to Christ. That is good. Any people who come to Christ is good in my books. So we've seen four different views, if your head is even still even engaged. We've come, done, covered a lot of things in a lot of big words. We've seen with, with all of them there are Bible passages that kind of seem to push and lean in that type of direction. I could list you names of people who you have a lot of respect for who probably fall into each one of those four categories. Most of them, with the exception of the dispensational one, been held by pious Christians from the earliest times all the way up until now, the last thing you want to do is to think, well, I've got it right. I'm in this particular camp and everyone else who clearly can't be a Christian and doesn't know their Bible because they don't agree with me. You know what? It's quite possible that none of those four models have it entirely correct. Think about Jesus' first coming. We look now at the Old Testament scriptures and think it was so clear and obvious. But at that stage, nobody got it, seemed to understand it and got it correct when Jesus did come. We understood the prophecy about his first coming after the event and as the New Testament authors explained it to us. 
So it's very possible that we may have got bits wrong, whichever camp we fall in. So what do we do? Do you know what? Regardless of which one of these four camps you may fall in, one thing doesn't change. Jesus Christ is returning. You need to be ready. You need to proclaim the gospel so other people are ready. That doesn't change. And if our question is, how do we respond? Guess what? The Bible tells us how we should respond in line of the fact that Jesus is returning. So let's listen to see what, what the Bible has to say. Firstly, Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it done it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Oh, good. It's going to answer our question. In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. What does Peter say? In light of the fact that a day is coming... We need to live lives of holiness and godliness. And we need to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. John writes in a very similar manner. He says, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall be, see him as he is. And everyone who hopes like this purifies himself as he is pure. So we don't need to fight about how do we respond in light of the fact that Jesus is returning, in light of the fact that he will bring world history to an end, in light of the fact that every single person will have an eternity, either eternal life and blessing in the presence of Christ or eternal punishment. We are called to live lives of holiness in this life. We are called to proclaim the gospel. We are called to be prepared. And if you want to discuss any of more of finer details... Or if your head just needs a rest, um, you can do that too. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have covered a lot of things that might have gone and done our head in a little bit. Lord, we, we thank you that you are indeed returning. We thank you that for those of us who do know you, that is a glorious thing to look forward to. And, and we rejoice that in the next couple of weeks we will be looking at what it is promised for the future for those who know and love Jesus Christ. Lord, as we begin to think about those things, they should be the things that we would want not only for ourselves, but we, that we should want and desire for all of those who are around us. Lord, we know it's not important so much that we understand big theological terms or even necessarily to commit to any of those one camps. But Lord, we do need to commit ourselves to the one to whom he is returning, to the one who has purchased our salvation, the one who has reconciled us, the one who can clothe us with the righteousness of Christ, that we can have absolute confidence to stand before you on that day of judgment to hear, well done, good and faithful service. 
Not because of our accumulation of good deeds, but through the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection and ascension. And for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.